on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you happen to be a first-time listener here on the internet at wagp.net or at 88.7 FM, we're so glad you could join us. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue in life that you want biblical counsel on or a text of Scripture or theological issue that you have questions about, well, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us locally. The uh, 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859 or toll-free. The 877 number is the call letters WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more uh, comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to our volunteer in the next studio in we will receive it. People also email us at TBL, or I should say, yeah, email. It's TBL for the Bible line at net, and you can do that. People ask me sometimes, well, how do I get a question to you? And I said, all you need to do is go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down menu, ask Dr. Berge a question, and then uh, Rick or Walt uh, brings the questions up. Uh, at the Bible line, and we attempt to answer them. You may not be able to listen during this hour, but you can still submit your question, and when it's answered, you'll be emailed back the day it was answered, and you can click on the link and listen accordingly. Well, let's go ahead, Walt. We'll get started this morning. All right, good morning. Our first question comes from Greg in Florida. He asks, why when those in heaven are always described as being clothed in light or wings or robes or garments, etc.?" Did God have pre-fall Adam and Eve inhabiting Eden on cloth? Also, as a Christian, how can you know the difference between God's chastisement and a satanic attack? All right. Um, the second question, I think we answered recently, but let me just hit on both of them. Uh, let me turn to the book of Genesis. If you will remember, in the book of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, and the text says... Um, there, for this reason, as he provides a bride for Adam, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So they were without clothing. And then, interestingly, after they sin and rebel, uh, what do they do? They, they hide from God. And then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Of course, whenever you hear the voice of God in Scripture asking a question, an omniscient God needs to learn zero. He knew precisely where they are. 
But it's interesting when you hear the questions of God verbally, he's revealing to man a need. He's unfolding some aspect of his own character by the questions that he asks. He's teaching, he's instructing through the questions that he asks. Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? And so on and so forth. So they were naked, and they had a new awareness of nakedness. And so how did that all unfold? Well, in both Jewish and Christian traditions, uh, it's been argued that before the fall, that Adam and Eve were clothed in light, uh, with divine light, very similar to how God is clothed. There's a number of passages throughout the Scriptures, especially in the Psalms, and even in the Torah that describes God's Shekinah, where God is clothed in light. In Psalm 104, it says, the Lord wraps himself in light with a garment. Um, And so God himself is clothed in light, and so when he makes Adam and Eve in an unfallen state in his own image, you would expect much the same. It's interesting, in Hebrew, uh, it's a very idiomatic... um, a lot of a lot of uh, figures of speech, a lot of metaphors, and there's uh, contronyms, there's hononyms, there's synonyms, there's antonyms, and and interestingly, the homonyms, you know, two words that sound uh, the word that sounds much like you say it. Uh, interestingly, there are two words: one for the word light, and that describes again how they were clothed, and then the word skin. And um, they're actually spelt the same with the exception of the first letter. And the, the two letters, the Aleph and the Ayan, uh, have actually no sound. They grab their sound from the, um, from the uh, verb, so to speak. Uh, and, and so with that said, uh, both Ayan and Aten sound very, very much alike. They're actually pronounced identically, though they're spelt a little bit differently. And so they grab their sound from, uh, you know, A-E-I-O-U as we have in English. Well, uh, when you read Hebrew, there are no vowels, so to speak. They just have consonants, but your mind produces the vowels as you read. And then, in, of course, later on in, in pointed Hebrew, they, they wrote those things out because people had lost their ability to read it. And they pointed the Hebrews through the Masoretes. But my point in all of this is that the way you say light and skin is identical. And so the tradition, not just by Jewish rabbis, but by the early church fathers, is that Adam and Eve were clothed in light. And when they sinned, uh, they lost that light, so to speak. The lights went out, and they became aware of their shame and their nakedness. And that's why to this day... Uh, when people, at least until they've seared or hardened their consciences, uh, there's a sense of shame when they are naked uh, in front of someone else. But there was no shame with Adam and Eve because they were in an unfallen, holy state. Uh, Sadly, when a culture becomes hardened and callous towards the things of God, there is no shame in nakedness, and the culture becomes more and more pornographic, much like it is today. Uh, the, the aspect of your question that um, it says here, being clothed in light or wings or robes, well, well, there are uh, certainly angelic beings with wings. There are no humans with wings in Scripture, and so I'm not sure if you were implying that or not. Uh, wings are... Uh, something that doesn't necessarily characterize angelic beings, but they can. 
And, of course, sometimes people, when they describe someone they've lost, well, he's an angel now or he's or she's an angel now, and that's not true. God made a fixed number of angels never to add or subtract any of them. There are holy or elect angels, and then there are fallen angels that are called demons. So angels don't procreate and have angelic babies, cherubs like you know, pictured in some of the medieval art and even on modern-day Hallmark cards. Um, That's just not biblically accurate. And so people have taken a verse out of its context where Jesus said when he confronted the Sadducees and they were questioning the resurrection and they come up with this bizarre case of this woman who gets married and her husband dies and she marries again and uh, her, her second husband dies and she marries again. And, you know, who'd want to marry her after the third or fourth husband? I mean, the, the odds aren't good that you would live. But anyway, they, they come up with this bizarre example. And Jesus said, no, in heaven, they're like the angels. It doesn't say they are angels. They're like angels in that in heaven, we neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so, uh, but people are clothed in robes of white, and there are actually two expressions. If you listen to my series on the Revelation, there are two expressions of white robes in the New Testament. One is an expression of the righteousness that the Messiah gives us, that we are as holy and as righteous as God uh, when our salvation is complete. And the other expression is white robes are also used in Scripture as a, a symbolic of the rewards that God gives to his people for his faithfulness. Uh, in terms of the difference between um, God's chastisement and a satanic attack, we just answered that three weeks ago from an, another caller, but basically very quickly, um, when Satan attacks, it's always to bring you down. It's an enticement to sin, whereas when God deals with his people, whether it's a trial or a um, some kind of expression of chastisement, corrective. Chastisement comes in two levels in the Bible. We think of it purely as corrective. Sometimes it's not corrective at all. Sometimes it's just to build character. You know, when you work with your own children, sometimes you spank them uh, as a corrective way, and there's a biblical way in which to do that. But sometimes you're not correcting them for anything wrong. You're just building discipline into their lives, and you are helping them to develop the God-given character that he desires of them. And so Satan pulls us down. God builds us up. And so there's a clear distinction. Temptations are to entice man to sin. Trials and the chastising hand of God is not to make us more evil, but to make us more holy. So I hope that helps, but you might want to go back uh, because this question has just been asked and there's a more detailed answer. Let's go to the next one, uh, Walter. Who do we have next? We have uh, Shelly from Columbia, South Carolina. She asked, Pastor Carl, do you know anything about Courtney Doctor? I teach a neighborhood Bible study and someone gave me a book by her on Romans to consider for a future study. I have never heard of her and I am very leery about book studies by authors that I am not familiar with. I normally teach from the Word of God. I know that is truth. Well, it's a fair question. And so when you study a book of the Bible, and if you're using commentaries, there's nothing wrong with it. Sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I don't read commentaries. I just let God speak to me. Well, you should allow God to speak to you. But on the other hand, um, God also speaks to other people. And so if we say, well, God can only speak to me and he can't speak to anyone else, and there's no value in a commentary, add to that, 
one of the gifts in the New Testament that God gives. There's actually two parallel gifts. One is the gift of teaching, and a second gift is the gift of pastor-teacher. And so those are two instructive gifts that God uses in the church uh, to build the body of Christ up. And so there are many, 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 many good commentaries written on Romans, Romans being really the constitution of the Christian faith. And sometimes uh, you will find a a good commentary that's uh, interlocked with, you know, the rest of the New Testament books, like the Bible Knowledge Commentary of the New Testament has all um, 27 books of the New Testament together. And the commentary that's done in Romans by actually a friend of mine is about 30 pages long. Um, it's, It's well done, but he has a great bibliography. And so in the back of the bibliography of the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I, and I suggest people to get that as a starting place. There's an edition on the Old Testament. There's an edition on the New Testament. It's conservatively done. And at the end of each book of the Bible, and they tend to deal with not the obvious, which sadly a lot of one-volume commentaries do, and there's no help. Well, I can see that. My question is, who's the Queen of Sheba, say, and where did she come from? And, and so they tend to deal with the less-than-obvious explanations and get you to think along those levels. But at the end of each book, there's a conservative bibliography that might be helpful where you can uh, draw some books. So when you think about Romans, my, you know, I have, uh, I have one eight volume set of books just by one author on the book of Romans. And then I have single volumes on the book of Romans that are hundreds of pages long. Um, in terms of your specific question, Courtney doctor, sometimes there's what I call guilt by association. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Carl? Well, if you Googled her name, you would be brought to a website called the Gospel Coalition. And the Gospel Coalition started, I suppose, with more conservative roots, but it's really significantly drifted. And so to associate yourself with the Gospel Coalition after it's drifted would say volumes about either your knowledge of Scripture uh, or of maybe your compromise of the Scripture. You know, there are people who are sometimes involved with folks who are not true to the Scripture, and in doing so, they're in violation of the Word of God. For instance, there's good God-fearing people who are in the United Methodist Church. Should they be? Absolutely not. Why? Because when they tithe to that church, number one, a portion of their tithe is directed by the bishop, goes to the denomination that is supporting very liberal causes, and they just put last week in office an openly gay lesbian woman as the head bishop of the United States um, United Methodist Church. So, you know, dealing with the homosexual issue, it didn't pass at the last conference, not because of the American church, but because of the African church. But the American church has said where it is at, and this new bishop said the conservative churches should leave. Okay, so I would say that would be guilt by association. Same with uh, Dr. Courtney, or, or with Courtney Doctor. She's not a doctor, but Courtney Doctor. She's involved in the Gospel Coalition. And in that are some people like Karen Swallow Pryor, who's another very dangerous woman teacher, along with Tim Keller, who you've heard me mention at times 
some of his gross compromise, even in his book that he put out over 20 years ago, Reason for God, where he made theistic evolution as something that can be appreciated in the body of Christ, though you may not agree with it. You can't appreciate that because it's in direct contradiction to the clear account of Scripture. And then more recently, he has come out and he has, and by the way, he's the president and founder of the Gospel Coalition, to which this woman, Courtney Doctor, associates herself. He said that Genesis 1 and 2 would be filled with error and mistakes unless it's poetry. It's not poetry. Jesus didn't quote it as poetry, nor did the apostles. It is doctrine. Now, that's not to say that everything that this guy has ever said is erroneous. I met a lady on Sunday night, and she said, well, I was actually helped by Tim Keller at a real low point in my life. Well, look, people were helped by Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart when they were uh, sleeping around immorally and visiting prostitutes. That's because of the power of God's Word. But uh, look, um, Karen Swallow Pryor, Tim Keller have given great credence to the Revoice movement. Sam Alberry is also associated with the Gospel Coalition. He basically espouses what's called same-sex Christianity that... Um, Short of the full act, and I know there are many children listening, so I'm very careful here. Short of the full act, uh, that you can express homosexual feelings towards someone of the same gender. That that's okay as long as you don't fully act on them. This, This is horrendous. This is evil. And for a man like Sam Alberry to make his way into the body of Christ and onto evangelical platforms... People are just either stupid or blind, or they just don't even know their Bible. So, no, why waste your time with this woman who's already in a compromised organization? Don't waste your time. If you're looking for some commentaries on Romans, there's many conservative ones that are very, very helpful and been used for the last hundred years. All right, let's go to the next question. I think maybe we have a live caller. Is that yes, right, sir, Walter? we do. 843-525-1859. And we have Amber and her daughter, Lorea. Good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl. Hey, Amber. Thanks for calling today. Tell me what your question is. All right. Hold on just a second, Amber. Go ahead. Can you hear me, Amber? All right. Well, Amber, I think we lost you. Maybe you will want to call back. Don't. Yeah, we lost her. So, Amber, feel free to call back. Sorry we missed your call. Sometimes that happens. There's quirky little things. Let's go to the next caller, right, Walter. To the next question. We have Amelia from Beaufort, South Carolina. She writes, I recently witnessed an interesting conversation in one of my college classes. A student and the professor, both mid-40s to 50s, were talking about the Bible in front of the whole class. This happens more often than I used to think for a secular school. They were talking about how the New Testament and the Old Testament are about two different gods. They meant that the Old Testament is about Yahweh and the New Testament about Jesus. The student went on to say that the New Testament was written for slaves, poor folk, women, etc., in order to get them to comply to orders, and the professor agreed. The rest of the class nodded in agreement with the professor, as usual, and at this point, I kind of tuned myself out like I do in most cases that this, when this type of thing happens. The topic of the day was already surrounding CRT, so I wasn't too involved in the class discussion to begin with. But I typically tune out things like this so that I don't spew or make a fool of myself accidentally 
because the Bible bashing at least once a week in my, in one of my five five classes. I was wondering how you would respond to things like this. As a student, I did say, I have never heard that before. This was a new one for me, and I wanted to say, have you ever read the Bible? But I think that it would have been a bit rude. I know they are wrong, especially when they say there are two different gods in the New and Old Testaments, but I also know that these people don't admit to believing in any of it, especially how the Trinity works. So would me saying anything even make a difference? In most cases, I don't speak up when this sort of thing happens because I know I would be giving my pearl to swine. So how would I go about entering that conversation to speak truth? Well, it's a great question, and uh, obviously some of the students and maybe the professor have never read the Bible, and very often, you know, people will say to me, oh, the Bible's filled with contradictions, and I will hand them the Bible, and I say, well, can you show me one? And of course, they cannot. Occasionally, they come up with something, and it's taken out of context, and then I explain the text in its context, and they say, oh, I guess there really isn't an error here. I understand we're living in a day where a nation is suppressing the truth of God. Romans 1 is being lived out. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. Why? Because while man knows about God through the creation, his his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, he is suppressing that. He's giving no praise or thanks. And so when people are attacking the Bible like this, it's typically 99.9% of the time there's a moral issue in the background of that person's life. And so remember, God, even with uh, the pagan Gentiles who are described in Romans 2.15, though they had never seen, quote, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, uh, Paul reminds us that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, were written into the heart of man. So man innately knows the difference between right, wrong, what's just, what's unjust, what's what's holy, what's unholy, because the law of God is written in his heart, and his conscience accuses him or defends him. So what you're seeing lived out, Amelia, in this college class are people who are denying the truth of Scripture. Sometimes you're right and you need to pray for wisdom. You're just casting your pearl before swine, but sometimes— There is a time to speak up and to get some people to think because while most of the class may be nodding, some nods are out of peer pressure and other people are not nodding at all. They just don't know what to believe. And you will find too very often that when a student speaks up respectfully, especially without attacking the professor or the student, that uh, your comments are welcomed because they like good discussion and some opposing discussion. So a couple of passages come to mind. In the New Testament, of course, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. When we speak of the immutability of God, one of his attributes, it means he does not change. In fact, that passage, among others in the book of Hebrews, is an affirmation of Jesus' deity. God himself describes himself as immutable. Like in the book of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Um, We just studied the book of James where it says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variableness or shifting shadow. Um, 
there's no shadow. You know, the sun creates shadows as it moves across the sky and from one place on the planet to another. But God has no change. And so we were even looking at the last Lord's table this past Sunday at First John that this is the message we've heard to you, uh, heard for, we have heard from him and we announce to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. Again, an expression of the unchangeableness of God. And so if someone just read both sides of the Bible, both covenants, they could not possibly come to the conclusion that somehow the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. Um, Moses wrote in Exodus 34, and it's quoted in Psalm 103. I read many times Psalm 103, maybe three or four times at the pastoral prayer, I quote it, uh, that God is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. David is saying that, and he's quoting actually Moses in Exodus chapter 34. And so God is described, he's pictured, there are numerous examples all the way through the Old Testament that God is loving, that God is compassionate. Uh, We quote in the New Testament, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens every son he accepts. That's in Hebrews 12. What is the writer of the Hebrews quoting? The book of Proverbs. So God deals with his own children in love and compassion and faithfulness, but he also deals with the unbeliever in wrath and in judgment. And if someone is not sure about that, I've already quoted Romans 1.18, a current expression of God's wrath, the wrath of God that is being revealed, not will be revealed, but is being revealed. There's different dimensions of the wrath of God. There is his cataclysmic wrath that you would see like in the great flood or uh, when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. There's the coming tribulational wrath that we're studying right now in our prophetic series that we'll be back into, Lord willing, this coming Sunday. Uh, There's the eternal wrath of God, but there's also the present-day current wrath of God that's being revealed. And you see that in the Old Testament, where God here and now judges people. And look, if you think the judgment of God is severe in the Old Testament, your professor has obviously never read the book of Revelation because the most uh, profound expressions of wrath will be seen during the seven-year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble called a time of great tribulation by Jesus. So severe, Jesus said, that if God had not cut it short, no human would have survived on the planet. So this is just a statement of pure, unmitigated ignorance. Now, you don't want to say to the professor, you're ignorant, or he might uh, he might challenge your grade. But with all due respect, sir, obviously there are many passages on both sides of the Bible. And by the way, the Lord Jesus is designated in the Old Testament as the angel of Yahweh, Yahweh. He is the one who is equal with the Father. And so what's true of The Father is also true of the Son, and we might add of the Spirit. So fair question, good question. We have a live caller. I think we've got him back on. Let's go to them, Walt. All right, Pastor Carl. Uh, I believe we have Amber and her daughter. Good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl. Good morning. Will we have the same hair in heaven? I will hang up and listen. Thank you. All right, all right. Well, Uh, We will have a lot of similar characteristics. How do we know? Well, because the Bible tells us there's coming a day when we will see him and we will be like him. 
And so what is true of the Lord Jesus in his resurrected body is also true of us. There will be some profound changes in our future resurrection body that are not true of us today. And so, for instance, the Apostle Paul reminds us in one sense that we have a dual citizenship. Uh, He speaks, for instance, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Uh, So with that said, uh, there'll be some parallels. You'll still have hands and feet and eyes and nose, and, and you'll still have hair. Interesting, Jesus had a hair color change in his resurrection body. It's described as white. Uh, whether or not, if you're a redhead now, you'll have blonde hair, I don't know. The scripture doesn't say, but I think with the Lord Jesus, there are probably some unique aspects, obviously, to him because he is the God-man. But there is a certain parallel that both Philippians and other passages in the New Testament teach that when we have our glorified body, uh, there will be aspects of this human body that will be the same, but be very different. Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the body that you have now is not qualified to walk on streets of gold in heaven, just like the body an unbeliever has is not suited for the lake of fire. God will create a special body just for that individual as he will create a special body for us. So here's a good principle that this little girl asked. I'm not sure how old is she, does it say? No, she did not say, Pastor Carl. Oh, oh there. I think I see it. Eight years old on line two. Yeah, yep. eight years old. So that's a profound question. But I, I will say this. Here's a good lesson. Where the Bible speaks, we can speak. Where the Bible is silent, we should be silent. And so I could give my opinion on hair color as to what it will be like, but that's all it would be. It would be an opinion. But I will say that there's a clear distinction between hairstyles of men and women that the Scripture affirms in Corinthians. And so he describes a a woman's hair as her glory And that's why to shave it all off would be a shameful thing to do. And I'm not here to judge like how long or how short a woman's hair should be. But the biblical principle is that there should be a clear distinction between a man's hair and a woman's hair. And I assume fairly based on that text, letting Scripture interpret Scripture from 1 Corinthians 14, that that will continue in heaven. As to hair color, God only knows, and so I'll be silent on that. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have Carol live online, too. Good morning. Carol, you are live with Pastor Carl. Hi. Good morning. Hey, Carol. I have heard that if a soul goes to hell, which those that do, that in the lake of fire, that the soul will no longer exist after some time because fire would burn it up. Is that true? No, that's a, uh, that's a heresy that has been postulated by liberal theologians. How do I know? Well, there are a number of passages that speak very clearly about the eternality of uh, the resurrected lost person. Remember, Jesus made it clear in John's gospel, in John chapter 5, I'm just flipping over there, 
he speaks of this. He said, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Uh, a couple things, a couple thoughts of reflection before I penetrate your question a little bit more. This is a classic example of a verse also used out of context where people think, well, in the end, God is going to weigh our good works, and if you did a lot of good, you're in. If you did a lot of bad, you're out. And that would deny what Jesus had just plainly taught, that we're justified, we're saved, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace through faith. He just said, for instance, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. He's already affirmed and taught that we're not saved by works. Uh, The Protestant reformers would say it something like this, you're saved by grace alone, or sometimes you'll hear you're saved by faith alone. But the grace that saves is never alone. In other words, your life changes. And so Jesus is not speaking of the hour of the resurrection, that is the timing of it, as much as he is the kind of resurrection, that there are two resurrections, a resurrection of life, and that person's uh, salvation is affirmed by their changed life, by the good they do, and a resurrection of judgment. Now, with that said, when we receive our resurrection bodies, and again, just like my body is not suited for heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality, Paul says. Uh, So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither can flesh and blood inherit hell. Why? Because hell is a place of eternal retribution. When the Lord Jesus, 2 Thessalonians, uh, let me just turn there for a second, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when he comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire, the Bible says he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The word obey is two Greek words bled together. It means to listen under. And so a person, when he hears the gospel, he needs to submit to the gospel. And it's a rebellious will that will not listen under the gospel, submit to it. Um, And then he goes on to say, these who don't know God, they know God in his existence, but they don't know God in terms of a personal born-again relationship. All men know there's a God, even the so-called atheist and agnostic. Romans 1, Romans 2 affirm that, many other passages. And so the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. But Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. I know who the president of the United States is, but I don't know him personally. And a lot of people know God exists. They may know great biblical truths about his son, but they don't know him personally. So to those who do not know God, he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. So the, the, the destruction is eternal in nature, away from the presence of uh, the Lord and from the glory of his power. Jesus affirmed the same truth in Matthew chapter 25, where he speaks of various judgments uh, that are going to unfold. 
And so he describes two classes of people. And again, the way they treated God's people was indicative of whether or not they had true faith. And so, you know, Lord, when did we see you in prison? When did we see you naked? When did we see you without food? And well, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And so he's describing this is the judgment of the nations, the way the uh, ethnoi, the nations, the Gentiles treated the Jews during the tribulation will show whether or not they had genuine faith. And so he says, these uh, will go away into eternal punishment. Those who did not display a changed life as evidenced by the way they treated his brethren, the Jewish people, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the word for eternal is the Greek word ionion. And the same word that's used for eternal life is also the same word ionion that's used for eternal punishment. And it's the same word in First Timothy that is used to describe the eternal God. So to say that God is not eternal is to say that heaven is not eternal is to say that hell is not eternal, and you cannot do that. So that's liberal Protestant theology that denied the eternal wrath of God. Hell is forever. There's no rest, Revelation 14, day or night. It's a place of eternal retribution. Now, we might write on someone's tombstone, rest in peace. But if they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there is no rest. There's no rest, Revelation 14 says, day or night. And so it's heretical. It's bad theology um, that is taught that most liberal theologians today don't even say there's a hell. But some who are at least trying to baptize their view in the Bible who are unbelievers, because again, like Peter said, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. They can't get away from the fact that there's a hell. They just say it's burned out. It's called annihilationism, that you just are burned out and you cease to exist. That's heresy. It contradicts the plain teaching of Holy Scripture. And by the way, this caller might want to be listening to my prophetic series, God's Prophetic Schedule, because we have begun with the rapture, and we're going to go all the way through the eternal state where we will speak in the weeks to come of the coming judgments of God. There are actually seven judgments of God that are described in Scripture, and certainly you don't want to be a part of the great white throne judgment. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. We have Scott from Beaufort, South Carolina. He asked, Pastor Carl, this is a question in regards to the two resurrections mentioned in Scripture. Jesus mentions these two resurrections in John 5, 28 through 29, and refers to them as the resurrection life. And the resurrection and condemnation in Luke 14, 14, Jesus refers to the first resurrection as a resurrection of the just. In Revelation 20, uh, chapter 20, we find some key information regarding the two resurrections. We find out that among those who partake in the first resurrection must have gone through the tribulation since they were beheaded for their witness and did not take the mark of the beast. In Revelation 20, verse 4, we also see a clear reference to this being the first resurrection in both verses 5 and 6 of chapter 20. We see Paul comforting the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52, in which he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we see another reference to the resurrection where Paul states that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. My question is this. It would appear that Paul is referencing the resurrection of, the, of just in the aforementioned verses and that he ties both to us being caught up in the air to meet the Lord. But if Revelation 20 is correct in stating that the first resurrection contains those who were beheaded and did not take the mark, how could that resurrection take place before the events of the tribulation? Is there somehow a resurrection before the first res- resurrection? All right. Ah, that's a long <laughs> question, Walt. You did a good job, man. So this kind of gets back to what we just uh, read from the previous caller. Again, in John 5, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. The word is horah. It means a, it doesn't mean a specific moment in time, but it speaks about time frame, a, a, a program, so to speak. And so there are different words for time in Scripture. And so a time frame is coming, you could render it, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. In uh, the text says, uh, some will come forth to a resurrection of life, and others will come forth to a resurrection of judgment. Now, there are different uh, views on how the end times will unfold. And then one view that we have highlighted in our series called God's Prophetic Schedule is what's called amillennialism. And so there are some people who think, well, there's just one big general resurrection at the end, and God separates the believers from the unbelievers, and that's it. It's a very sloppy handling of Scripture, R.C. Sproul, um, a number of people who are in the Reformed faith have taught that, and it's predicated on their view of Israel, their understanding of Abraham's seed and the promise that God has given to his seed that's an everlasting promise such that the church has replaced Israel. So that's behind all this. But let me just kind of walk it through. Um, The plain teaching of Scripture indicates there's two kinds of resurrection. There's a resurrection of the just or the saved, and there's the resurrection of the unjust. Those who are saved are a part of what the Bible calls the first resurrection. Um, And so the stage one of the first resurrection, we might best call it the first resurrection program, because it's not like a single moment where, oh, this is the first resurrection and it's all done. If you just think your way through this and you let Scripture interpret Scripture, this becomes plain. Who is the very first one ever to be raised from the dead? Well, Jesus. So he's part of the first resurrection program. There were certainly individuals who were raised to life only to die again. But Jesus was the first one ever to be resurrected from the grave. Who came after him? An often overlooked verse that I've turned to here is in Matthew 27. It says, The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or died were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So, again, this is in keeping with uh, the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, If you do a study on the Feast of Israel, there are four in the spring, three in the fall, and the four spring feasts were all 
fulfilled in the first coming of the Lord Jesus. Passover, unleavened bread, Feast of First Fruits, and Shavuot or Pentecost, all fulfilled in picturing Christ in the Old Testament, but fulfilled. And so when they celebrated first fruits, what they would do is they would come and they would bring a single sheaf that was dedicated to the Lord and then uh, a handful representing the coming harvest that they were looking to God and giving him thanks for. Uh, If you're a farmer, you know what this means, like the strawberries come in, and sometimes they'll still use this term. They'll say, well, the harvest isn't here, but the first fruits are here. In other words, there's the early, early strawberries. And so Jesus is that single sheaf, and then the handful of Old Testament saints are also included in the first resurrection program. And so after the Scripture, it says with great precision in the NAS, after his resurrection— they entered the holy city, and then apparently they went on to heaven. Then stage two is what we call the rapture of the church, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This is all part of the first resurrection. Stage three of the first resurrection program is found in Daniel chapter 12. So the next to go up is known as the body of Christ, the church. After them, at the end of a seven-year period, Daniel 12. And so the scripture there speaks of uh, Old Testament saints. Let me just turn there very, very quickly, because most of us think, well, you know, Abraham and these guys are already in heaven. Well, their spirits are, just like the departed spirits of your loved ones that knew Jesus are in heaven. The Lord will bring with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ will rise first because the spirits he's bringing back are brought together in a new resurrection body. And then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up. Well, here in Daniel 12, now at that time, Michael, the great prince, speaking of Michael, the archangel, he's the one who is given supervision over the nation of Israel, who stands guard over the sons of your people. He'll arise, and there'll be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Uh, And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Very similar, isn't it, to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, a time of distress like has never happened in all of human history. Jesus is referencing Daniel 12, and Michael gets up. In fact, there's a war in heaven that takes place during this time that Revelation chapter 12 uh, speaks of. Then it says, many who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So this is the resurrection of uh, Old Testament saints, some to judgment, some to life. And those who are brought to life, they're all part of the first resurrection program. Um, So again, he's, he's very, very clear, everlasting life, first in everlasting contempt. Again, two types of resurrection and uh, two kinds of resurrection. And so then, uh, of course, the Scripture says in the book of Revelation, included in this first resurrection, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Who is he speaking of? These tribulation saints who you mentioned were beheaded. They're in heaven. What happens? Their spirit in heaven is reunited with their body in their grave, so they're raised when these Old Testament saints are raised. Tribulational saints who have been martyred are raised during this second coming event when Jesus comes back. 
Again, this is all part of the first resurrection program. So just like the, and by the way, so by implication, there's a second resurrection, and you don't want to be involved in that. When are the lost of all time raised? The resurrection of the unrighteous at the great white throne judgment. So what happens to the unbeliever when he dies today? Well, just like the Christian absent from the body present with the Lord, the unbeliever absent from the body present in Hades. Hades is in the Hebrew Sheol. And so even if you were reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it would render that place as Hades. And there was actually a time when you could use the word Hades in a very positive way because there were two compartments to Hades. There was unrighteous Sheol or Hades where people like the rich man who died went. It's a place of torment. And then there's righteous Hades or Sheol. Righteous Hades or Sheol was emptied out at the ascension of Christ. And so today for the believer, he's present with the Lord in heaven. The unbeliever is immediately sent to hell, a place of torment. And again, just like the believer in heaven is given some intermediate body, even so the unbeliever in hell is given some kind of intermediate body. But then at the end of the thousand-year reign, all of the lost of all time are brought together. And so these are people who are part of the second death. And you want to be part not of the second death. You want to escape the second death by having been born twice. If you've only been born once, you'll die twice. You'll die first physically, then you'll die eternally. You'll, be, you'll experience the second death where death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades will continue the place where the lost are, but it will just continue in the lake of fire. So just like not everyone dies at once, but they die over the centuries, not everyone is resurrected at life. Uh, resurrected at the same time. They're resurrected over this whole program. So it's a complicated question, but it's a good question. It's a long question, but uh, (laughs) thank you for it. Let's go to our next caller. All right, Pastor Carl, we have a live caller. Uh, We have Woody. Good morning, Woody. You are on the Bible line with Pastor Carl. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead, Woody. Uh, I've been reading in 1 Samuel, and... um, I got to chapter 16 up at 17, actually, but it seems to me that chapter 16 and 17 are switched around chronologically. Would that be correct? I think it is. So, yeah, sometimes um, the Old Testament writers will use a style um, that is indicative of a point they want to make. Uh, the first time you see this in Holy Scripture is in Genesis, where you see Moses in the 10th chapter, and he gives us the table of nations. And you'll see this all the way through the first five books. And he gives a description of all these different peoples and nations. Well, like, where did they come from? And then in the 11th chapter, he reviews and he tells us the genesis of the multiple nations at the Tower of Babel. And you find the same thing going on in First and uh, in in First Samuel, so great question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. I think we can get a squish a few more in. Uh, this, we've we've had been stacked up with so many questions. All right. Uh, we hope to get some answers for some of our people to some of these. All right. So uh, we have Larry from East Waterboro, uh, Maine. Pastor Carl, what is your opinion of Doctor Andrew Farley? Uh, not much. Uh, <laughs> 
He is on Sirius Radio. I have satellite radio in my car. You only have to listen to a guy like that once, and you've heard enough. Um, He has some very, very shaky teachings. He wrote a book that Zondervan put out called Farley's Naked Gospel. Um, Anyway, among other things, he denies that we still, as redeemed people, have a sin nature. Uh, He just has a lot of twisted views on a number of orthodox doctrines. And I think Zondervan right now is doing what Lifeway Books did with Jan Hatmaker and with Beth Moore. Uh, These people are moneymakers because, obviously, he's on satellite radio. He has a national audience that he pays for. And so if you have enough people listening, and especially enough naive people who are listening, then uh, you can sell a lot of books. And so I think that was Lifeway's motivation. And, of course, many of us, I had the vice president of Lifeway who came to a wedding I performed, and I knew him because we were in a church together back in Texas in the 1980s. And I said, why on earth— do you guys still push Beth more? And, you know, bottom line, it's a cash cow. And Zondervan's doing the same thing. And that's why these Christian publishers just disgust me sometimes, because they have no integrity like their brothers in prior decades had, where you could trust a label. And if it was on this press or that press, you knew it was going to be sound theologically. So not anymore. So, for instance, he'll take First John 1.9 He will say that Christians no longer need to confess sin. He'll say that's a salvation verse. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's not a salvation verse. It's a verse that deals not with our relationship with God, but with our fellowship with God. Um, And so he has like this true false uh, test that you can take to try to reveal how sound you are. And it's just horrendous some of the conclusions that... um, he, he makes, for instance, he has on his true-false test, when we sin against God, we're out of fellowship until we repent. He said that's false. Again, he's taking 1 John 1, 9 as his salvation verse, and he doesn't understand some basic truths between our union with God and our communion with God. So there's just all kinds of inaccuracies. Um, he, he says that it's false to say that the Bible says that we can obtain rewards in heaven. He said, that's a myth. Listen, Jesus said you are to store up treasure in heaven and not on earth. And so I could go through about 15 basic gross errors, but he's selling books. And that's all Zondervan cares about. We want to make our executives rich. And now that most bookstores in America are shut down uh, due to COVID is the final nail in the coffin. We need to sell them online, and if we got a national radio host with tens of thousands of ignorant listeners, we can sell books. It doesn't matter as long as they're buying them. Wow, wow, wow. Where is their integrity? Anyway, this caller from Maine asks a great question. Turn them off. I only had to listen to them once, and I was nauseated. Look, the Scripture teaches that we incur stricter judgment, those of us who teach. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line. 